Section 4 of The Life of a Fossil Hunter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kualada The Life of a Fossil Hunter by Charles Sternberg Part 2 of Chapter 3 Expedition with Professor Cope to the Badlands of the Upper Cretaceous, 1876. A few days later, he sent word to us on Dock Creek to break camp and proceed, according to the scout's directions, to Cow Island with all the outfit. This was no easy task. In fact, at first sight, it appeared impossible. No wagon has ever before rolled down these steep hillsides. Mr. Isaac, however, took command, and after removing everything from the wagon except Professor's trunk, which could neither be packed on a horse nor carried by hand, we began our journey up the long 1,200 feet to the prairies above. Working with axes, picks, and shovels, we cut trees, bridged chasms, and made roads, climbing upward step by step until in the afternoon we reached what for the moment threatened to be the end of our journey. Before us rose the sloping side of a ridge, covered entirely with loose shale and so steep that it was impossible to climb it even on horseback without making a long diagonal across its flank. At the summit, the ridge was narrow enough to be straddled by a wagon, and it sloped down at the same angle on the other side. The teamster refused to go any further, and this angered Isaac, who said that he would drive himself. So he unhitched the reed horses, and climbing the wagon, urged on the stupid mustangs, one walked in a trail that we had made, the other in the loose dirt below. I was a good deal concerned as to the fate of both men and team, but experience had taught me the folly of arguing with an angry man, so I sat on my horse and waited for the outcome. Isaac had driven about thirty feet above the level floor when the inevitable happened. I saw the wagon slowly begin to tip, pulling the ponies over sideways, and then the whole outfit, wagon and horses, began to roll down the slope. Whenever the wheels stuck up in the air, the ponies drew in their feet to their bellies, and at the next turn, stretched out their legs for another roll. My heart was in my mouth for fear that Isaac would be killed in one of the turns, or that wagon and all would roll over a thousand-foot precipice below. But after three complete turns, they landed, the horses on their feet, the wagon on its wheels, on a level ledge of sandstone, and stood there as if nothing had happened. When I saw that Isaac was safe, I could not help laughing, and in consequence was told that if I was so smart, I could get up the slope myself. I quickly gave orders that the picket ropes be tied together and fastened to the hind axle of the wagon, and that the horses be led singly up the trail. 
The rope was then carried to the top of the ridge, and the horses were hitched to it, and driven down the steep slope on the opposite side, thus drawing up the wagon. We then righted it so that it straddled the ridge and could be safely hauled out to the level prairie. After this, we had to go back on horses and bring the camp outfit, which we had left at Dog Creek, to the wagon. About three o'clock that afternoon, our scout, who had not showed up during the heavy labor of getting the outfit up to the prairie, was seen coming from the south through a break in the foothills, while at the same time another horseman approached at full speed from the east. At a sign from the scout, our driver stopped his horses, and Isaac and I rested in our saddles. The second horseman soon proved to be Professor Cope, who galloped up to the guide and stopped him. The gestures of the two men and the sound of their raised voices indicating that an animated argument was going on between them. Finally, the scout, his face heated and scowling, came up to the wagon and without a word got out his roll of blankets and extra clothing and started off in the direction of Fort Benton. The cook shouted after him and then, springing from the wagon, followed him. When they were out of earshot, the scout stopped and the two began an excited conversation. Then it was the cook's turn to show of what poor stuff he was made, for, coming back to the wagon, he loaded his blankets and grip on his broad shoulders and struck out on foot for a wood camp a few miles to the north on the river. When Coke came up, he told us that these two men, whom he had paid in full for three months' work, had deserted him here on the open prairie, a hundred and twenty miles from his base of supplies. It seems that the scout had come across Sitting Bull's war camp, where thousands of warriors, drunk with the blood of Custer and the brave men of the 7th U.S. Cavalry, were defying the government in the inaccessible canyons around the dry fork of the Missouri. The camp was only a day's journey from us, and the scout and our valiant cook had concluded that their precious cups were too valuable to risk. The professor asked us whether we could carry on the double work which their dishonorable conduct had made necessary, and we willingly undertook to do so, even if it were to mean working our fingers to the bone. Isaac took the seat, and we prepared to start on, but misfortunes never come singly. Our four-year-old colt, who had had a chance to rest during the delay, suddenly decided that he too would try to put a stop to the expedition. He balked, and when the professor went up to him to lead him along, he struck out viciously with his forefeet. Now I imagine that the professor had put up with about all he was willing to bear. The cowardly desertion of our men, combined with the discomforts of our situation, we had had nothing to eat or drink since we left Dark Creek, and the only spring on the route at which we could get good water was miles away, left little mercy in his heart for this miserable, obstinate horse. He told Isaac to unhitch the animal and tie him to a hind wheel, 
while I got on top of the wagon, armed with a club to prevent his trying to climb in. With the whip in one hand, butt and down, Cope approached the horse with the other outstretched, speaking gently to conciliate him. The horse, however, struck out with all his might, narrowly escaping the blow. The professor stepped back, raised the whip, and with the butt end hit the horse behind the ear. The animal fell like a flash, and lay for some time stunned. But when he struggled to his feet, and the professor approached him again with outstretched hand and soft words, the brute struck again. Again, Cope knocked him down, and although when he rose to his feet he made another feeble attempt to strike. A third knockdown blow was enough for him. After that, he welcomed the professor's advances, accepting with every symptom of pleasure the caresses bestowed upon him. And when untied, he almost dragged Cope after him in his anxiety to get to his traces. We had no more trouble with him until a long rest and plenty of food caused him to forget his punishment. And made a repetition of it necessary. It was not until late that night, after fourteen hours of strenuous labor, that we were able to eat our supper of bacon and hardtack, and lie down for a few hours' rest. We slung our food from a tree to get it out of reach of any grizzlies, which might come straying around in search of bread crumbs or bacon rinds. We expected any moment to be rolled out of bed by some prowling paw. The next day, we travelled along through the great level stretches that skirt the badlands. The prairie was covered with thick bunches of grass, and often had been rooted up for acres by grizzlies in search of wild artichokes, a sweet morsel they love. We often saw herds of deer and elk and antelope. Part of the time, our route lay among the foothills of the Judith River Mountains to the south of us, and when we emerged again onto the open plain, we found ourselves in a great amphitheater, a hundred miles across. To the west, the towering ranges of the Rockies rose in silent grandeur, their sides scarred deeply with canyons, in whose recesses the white snow gleamed and sparkled in the morning light. To the south, east, and north, the Judith River Mountains, the Little Rockies, Medicine Bow, Bear Paw, and the Sweet Grass Mountains on the borderline of Assiniboia, made up the circle. A glorious scene, and there was exhilaration too in the thought that ours was the first wagon to roll through these rich solitudes, given up for ages to the Red Hunter and his game. These hills were soon to re-echo with the shriek of the locomotive, and this rich soil to nourish a thousand souls. But in the days I am recalling, we did not meet a single human being in all the forty miles of our journey. That night, after another hard day, we halted at the head of a short and very steep ravine, ending in an open valley between two ridges. Whose lofty precipices abutted on the misery twelve hundred feet below. This valley, Cope told us, was to be our camping ground for some time to come, 
as a steamboat snubbing post was situated here. When I learned this, I threw out my roll of blankets and started it on its way to camp. It bounded down the ravine, leaping high in the air from boulder to boulder, and never stopped until it was caught in a bunch of the cactus that covered the level plain below. Everything but the professor's trunk was unloaded, and the wagon pulled to the head of the gulch, where Isaac took charge of the tongue, and the professor and I, each tying a picket rope to the hind axle and making a half hitch to a convenient sapling, led the wagon slowly down the hill. When the rope was paid out, Isaac blocked the wheels with stones, and we advanced for another hitch, continuing in this way until we reached the bottom. The baggage was then packed down, and after a space had been cleared of cactus, our tent was pitched. It was not until long after midnight that we sat down to cook our meal, and when we rolled into our blankets, we slept the sleep of utter exhaustion. Not only during this trip, but all through our stay in the Badlands, we were tormented by myriads of black gnats, which got under our hat rims and church leaves and produced stores that gave rise to pus and thick scabs. They got under the saddles and girths too, irritating the horses almost beyond endurance. We were forced, for lack of something better, to cover our faces and arms with bacon grease and to rub the skins of the horses under the collars and the saddles with the same disagreeable substance. Fossil bones always partake of the characteristics of the rock in which they are entombed, and here they were quite hard when we got into where the rock was compact. The professor found here the first specimen ever discovered in America of the wonderful horned dinosaur, Monoclonius, he called the first species. I assisted him in digging out his specimen of M. crassus, a species distinguished by a small horn over each orbit and a large one on the nasal bones, and I myself discovered two species new to science. One of these, an M. sphinocerus, was six or seven feet high at the hips, and according to Cope, must have been twenty-five feet long, including the tail. It has a long compressed nasal horn and two small horns over the eyes. Professor March later discovered a similar form in these same fossil beds and named it Ceratops montanus. The species I discovered were collected on the north side of the river, three miles below Cow Island. After the professor had taken the last boat down the river, when we uncovered these bones, we found them very brittle as they had been shattered by the uplift of the strata in which they were buried, and we were obliged to devise some means of holding them in place. The only thing we had in camp that could be made into a paste was rice, which we had brought along for food. We boiled quantities of it until it became thick, then, dipping into it flour bags and pieces of cotton cloth and burlap, we used them to strengthen the bones and hold them together. This was the beginning of a long line of experiments, 
which culminated in the recently adopted method of taking up large fossils by bandaging them with strips of cloth dipped in plaster of Paris, like the bandages in which a modern surgeon encases a broken limb. I feel it a great privilege to have been one of the original discoverers of these great horned dinosaurs, whose skeletons are now among the chief glories of our museums. One day, about the 15th of October, Professor Cope, who had been anxiously awaiting the arrival of the last steamboat, concluded to ride out on the open prairie to some badlands which we had seen on our journey down from Dock Creek. I accompanied him. On the way, he fell into one of his frequent absent-minded moods, picturing the land as it must have been at the time of the dinosaurs, when the shale of these black-sided canyons was mud on an ocean floor. So fascinated were we both by his descriptions that the time flew by unheeded, and it was afternoon before we reached the prairie south of Cow Island. Upon arriving at the bit of badlands, we separated, agreeing to meet at four o'clock at the place where we left the horses. I kept the appointment, but the professor was nowhere to be seen, and as hour after hour passed with no sign of him, I began to grow anxious. I knew the foolishness of trying to find him in that network of gorges and ridges, and could only wait, eagerly watching the outlets of the labyrinth. Just as the sun was sinking behind the Rockies, he came out of a narrow ravine with the head of a large mountain sheep on his back. He gave it to me to carry behind my saddle, and with a few words we mounted and set off at full speed for home, remembering the three men whom we had met on the prairie at noon, who had been lost for three days in the intricate passages of the Badlands. I did not like to think of trying to find a way there after night. The professor dashed over the prairie without once drawing rain, clearing bunches of cactus ten feet sometimes in diameter at a single bound, and I followed suit. So by a series of leaps, we crossed the ten-mile stretch and drew up at the head of a gorge from which we could see Cow Island. Cope eagerly scanned the lights of the little station and finally decided that a new set had been added to those of the soldiers' tents. He was sure that the long-expected steamer lay at her snapping post and declared emphatically that we must reach Cow Island that night. I knew the uselessness of trying to combat his iron wheel but I pleaded with him against the folly of attempting to tread in the darkness those black and treacherous defiles, where a single misstep meant certain death. I begged him to wait until daylight. We were, to be sure, hungry and thirsty, and food, water, and shelter were to be had only at the river. But sleeping in our saddle blankets without supper was, I urged, preferable to running the risk of being dashed to pieces. He paid no attention to what I said, but dismounting, led his horse into the canyon. He had to cut a stick to chope in front of him, as his eyes could not penetrate the darkness a single inch ahead. I cut another to punch along his horse, which did not want to follow him. 
Sometimes when we had climbed down several hundred feet, the end of the professor's stick would encounter only air, and a handful of stones thrown ahead would be heard to strike the earth far below. Then we had to turn and climb back through the deep dust to the top, and circling a canyon, plunge down on the other side. Once we got down to the river four miles from the prairie, and thought that our journey was over, as we could see the light station just across the river. But when we had watered our thirsty horses and started down for the landing, we found our way blocked by a huge ridge with a towering precipice impinging on the river, and we had to drag ourselves back over those four long hard miles to the prairie and start again. I freely confess that I should have been willing to lie down in the dust just where I was and let the horses look out for themselves. But Cope's indomitable will could not be conquered. Back we climbed to the top, and down we went into the next ravine. I have never known another man who would have attempted this journey. It was both foolhardy and useless, but we could say that we accomplished what no one else had ever had in reaching Cow Island through the badlands after dark. For we did reach it. Just before daylight, we got down to the landing across from the station, and sure enough, the steamboat was at her post. But another disappointment was in store for us. The professor shouted to the surgeon to come and take us over, but his voice was not recognized, and as the surgeon was afraid that the call might come from some Indian who had prepared an ambush, he refused to respond. We were soaked with perspiration and rapidly becoming chilled by a cold fog that was rising along the shore, and we were obliged to walk back and forth to keep warm until the professor had recovered his natural voice. Then, in his haste to correct his error, the surgeon sent a boat across in the wrong place, and it was turned over in the rapids. He had to rescue the half-drowned men, capture the boat, and try again. At last, however, we were warming ourselves in a tent, where a pot of beans was simmering for the soldiers' breakfast. Not a bean was left when we got through with them, and three pounds of raspberry jam spread upon, I was going to say a box of hardtack, followed the beans. Then the surgeon took us both out into the open air and turned back the big black tarpaulin covering the gold ore that was to be shipped to the smelter at Omaha. He made us a warm nest of new blankets, and when we had crawled into it, pulled the tarpaulin back into place. Did we sleep? Asked the deckhands who let the sunlight in upon us about nine o'clock the next morning, when they pulled away the tarpaulin to load the oar. Cope at once sought the captain of the boat and said, I am Professor Cope of Philadelphia. I have a four-horse wagon at a steamboat snubbing post three miles below. I would like you to stop there on your way down and carry my outfit across to the side. My baggage and freight are also there, and I want to take passage for Omaha. Well, sir, the man answered, I am the captain of this boat. If you want to go down the river, you must have your baggage, freight, and self at this landing before ten o'clock tomorrow morning, when I leave for down river points.
the professor did not argue the question further he tried to get the loan of an old sand scow but the man who owned it had heard this conversation with the captain and refused to lend it the professor was obliged to purchase it for an enormous price and the next day left it where he got it he boarded this scow and leaving our ponies picketed across the river paddled down to camp where to our disgust we found that mr isaac had gone out into the badlands to look for us there was no time to lose so although stiff and sore from our night's exertions we plunged into the work of lowering the tent packing our stores and fossils into the wagon and dragging everything aboard the scow we were ready to start when mr isaac appeared we crossed the river swimming our horses and then came the time for old major to go it alone and show his worth we converted the missouri into a canal and its northern bank into a towpath. path old major we hitched to a line attached to the scow and while a couple of mountain men whom we had in camp kept the boat away from the shore with long poles i rode the big horse often right into the river until he began to stink in a mud bank and i had to turn hastily back to shore the professor and mr isaac had the worst praises for they had to keep the rope from being caught by a snag or rock and when it did catch if they did not instantly lose their hold upon it the tension threw them far over into the river and they had to get out as best they could this occurred a number of times when about sundown we hove to under the big steamer the deck was crowded with passengers watching our approach cope was covered with mud from head to foot and his clothing with hardly a seam hole hung from him in wet dirty rags he had forgotten to bring along any winter wearing apparel so although the nights were quite cold and the women were clad in fur coats and the men in ulsters he emerged from the surgeon's tent whither he had carried his grip in a summer suit and linen duster he told me about a funny experience he had on the boat on the way down the river it goes without saying that in that long trip he taught the passengers more natural science than they had ever learned in all their lives before at a certain wood camp he and some others went ashore and found the skull of a crow indian the crow method of burial was to wrap the body in a blanket lay it on the ground and built around it an open frame of logs to keep away wild animals it was an easy matter to pick up a skull the professor carried his find aboard in his hand before everyone and was beginning to tell his enlightened listeners the special cranial characteristics of this tribe when a body of deckhands headed by their appointed speaker came forward and told the captain that they would not allow professor cope to emulate the dead he must take this girl back to its grave or they would not remain aboard and take the boat down to omaha why said the speaker earnestly we will be caught on every mud bank in the river and there is no telling what calamities will happen if he is allowed to emulate the dead there was no getting them to back down from their position and the crow's skull was restored to its grave but the professor said afterwards 
we had a dozen skulls packed within the fossils and in spite of them reached Omaha without having to walk on stilts, as had been prophesied. Shortly after the professor left us, I discovered a fine specimen, one of those mentioned earlier in this chapter, three miles below Cow Island, near the base of a high tableland, where I kept my pony picketed while I worked. One day, when I prepared to mount him, I noticed that he was unusually quiet. His custom was to start on a run as soon as my foot touched the stirrup, leaving me to get into saddle as best I could. This time he stood still, and when I reached my seat and lifted the lines, I found that they were perfectly useless as the curb was broken. Before I could dismount, the brute started at a rapid pace across the tableland toward a sheer precipice hundreds of feet high. I settled myself firmly in the saddle and hung on with both hands to the handholds behind, fearing that he might try to hurl me over, and that was just what he did. When he got within a few inches of the brink, he planted his feet and stopped suddenly. But providence and long practice in riding all kinds of horses enabled me to keep my seat, and fortunately the saddle girds held. I was just about to dismount when suddenly the determined animal whirled around and started for the precipice on the other side where he went through the same performance and not satisfied even then tried the trick a third time. Then he allowed me to dismount and mend the curb. In payment for his treachery, I forced him to run at full speed down the steep and ragged trail to camp. This chapter had been largely taken up with adventures and a study of the man Cope, but as a matter of fact, there was little else to tell about, as we were in such haste that we secured few specimens, and the most important result of the expedition was our discovery of many new specimens of dinosaurs, represented chiefly by teeth. On the 1st of November, a heavy snowstorm set in, promising to leave the country covered with snow for the winter. So we loaded our outfit and started for Fort Benton. The surgeon went with us, very fortunately as is proved, for one night, as we were camping in the Bear Paw Mountains. One of our crazy Mustang wheelers heard a wolf howl and started on a run for one of the other horses, which was picketed farther down the slope. Coming suddenly to the end of its rope, its feet slipped and it fell and broke its neck. But for the surgeon's horse, we could not have hauled in our load. Countless herds of buffalo were being driven to the badlands by the storm, as were also great droves of deer, elk, and antelope. It seemed as if it would be impossible to exterminate them. Yet I learned by the papers the other day that the last herd of buffalo of any size had been sold at $300 ahead to the Canadian government, Uncle Sam being too poor to make the purchase. We reached Fort Benton in safety, learning later that Sitting Bull had crossed at Cow Island and killed the soldiers who had been left there. I never saw my associate, Mr. Isaac, again but I know that he discovered some fine material the next year. I made the return stage journey of 600 miles in six days. 
Through the mountains, the thermometer averaged twenty below zero, and I ate four hearty meals a day. I recrossed the Great Divide on the Union Pacific Railroad, made a brief visit home, and went on to spend the winter with Professor Cope. End of section four. Recorded by Palada.